If you would please go ahead and have a seat and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27 is where we're going to be today. But as we get started, I want to tell you guys a story. Once there was a professor, he was a graduate level professor, and he decided he wanted to test the ingenuity of his grad students. They were engineering students, they were all sorts of different levels of education. He had some four-point students, he had some 2.8 students, and he said, I want to challenge you. So he pulled out a beaker. Now, when I hear the word beaker, I think of the Muppet, but um, the beaker would be the glass tube. He pulled out the glass tube and he said, see this glass tube? I want for you, using all of your vast experience, all of your craziest, most elaborate ideas, I want you to find out an efficient way to get all the air out of that glass beaker. And he said, I want, I'm going to give you one hour And whoever gets the most simplest, most complete getting the air out will get extra points, will get bragging rights, all sorts of things. And so he turned the students loose. He said, ready, go. And the students started scribbling on their notepads and typing on their laptops and working through ideas. There was, though, one student in the back of the room who pulled his pen out, wrote down a sentence, put his pen down, and just sat there and watched all of his classmates freaking out. For the next hour, they were burning through pencil lead and typing up all of their ideas, drawing schematics. The professor said, time, how are, how are you going to get the air out of the beaker? And he started going around the room, and one person had an elaborate vacuum system that he created using electric energy to suck the air out and create a vacuum in there. But it was this elaborate machine about the size of a car. Another guy came up with the idea of pumping in some argon and then pulling out the oxygen molecules and all of these elaborate, elaborate things. Finally, he got to the man in the back and he said, what do you have? And he said, fill the beaker up with water. The professor went, perfect. It's exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for the simplest, most complete, most thorough way to solve this problem. And it was as simple as taking water, pouring it in the beaker till the water overflowed. Thus no air, thus simple and complete. That young man went on to be a very well thought of engineer. And uh, I like this story because it really fits with what we're going to be talking about today. But I'm not going to tell you yet what that is. So you'll have to bear with me. So here's our big picture for today. Uh, Only a renewed kingdom heart can desire the kingdom's sexual ethic. Only a renewed kingdom heart can desire the kingdom's sexual ethic. So last week, Pastor Scott taught, and we started into what are called the six antitheses, or antitheses, depending on who you ask how to pronounce it. It means six antithesis. And there's six of them. He goes through, and there are all of these different statements where he says, you've heard it said, but I say. And I will tell you right off the bat, there's a lot of people who get these passages wrong. They think, oh, well, this means that the Old Testament is antiquated and we don't need it anymore and Jesus is giving us a new law. Others think that this is Jesus expanding on the law and adding his own flavor or his own slant to it. That's actually not true. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking back the commandments. 
See, what had happened was there, the, in, the Old Testament had a certain set of commandments, and then by the time it got to the New Testament, the teachers of the law and the, all the people were practicing it incorrectly. See, they, they had a discontinuity view. What had happened was, here was what the law was for, and here's what it meant. And by the time they got to Jesus, it wasn't anything like what it was supposed to be. So Jesus says, I'm taking back the law. I'm taking it back, and we're taking it to where it's supposed to be. See, Jesus is telling us, like we saw earlier, how to be that salt and light. How to be that city on a hill. How we are to not fit in with this world. Remember, he said, we are poor in spirit. We are mourning for our sin. We are meek. We are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are people who extend mercy, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, and ultimately, we are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And this odd group that we are, these kingdom citizens, we stick out. We stick out like a sore thumb. And so, he's returning us to the law. The disciples at this time were awash in the discontinuity. They were surrounded. Everything they saw was discontinuity with what the law originally meant. Now, we're not in that same situation, are we? It's not that our world has decided to reinterpret the Old Testament to be more legalistic. As a matter of fact, our world views the Old Testament as antiquated, out of date, and maybe even harmful. So we have a different kind of discontinuity, but yet we still need what Jesus is telling us here. Because ultimately, our default setting is I want to earn my way. I want to work my way to being right with God. But Jesus says, no, you get right with God, and then this is who you are. So we're going to start right here at the beginning. And and I, I love getting to Jesus. And I like to get to him at the end of the sermon and and point you there. And I like to bring it back around to him. But we're not doing that this time. We're going to do it at the beginning and at the end. Someone needs to say amen to that because that's exactly what we need. Charles Spurgeon once said that just like every road in England leads to London in one way, shape, or form, every passage in Scripture leads to the cross. And that's exactly what we have to do. So as we read this passage here in a second... Think about how does this relate back to the cross? Actually, in chronologically speaking, forward to the cross because Jesus is saying this beforehand. So I'm going to read you the passage now, starting in verse 27. You have heard it said that it, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So now, we hear this passage, and it's easy to have two responses to that. The first one is, oh man, I've sinned. This is is talking about me. This is talking about my lust. This is talking about my sin. I am too bad to be in this room. 
Maybe I can sneak out, pretend I'm going to get a coffee and just go home. Because I am bad. I've lusted. I'm addicted to porn. I've had an affair. I've had a divorce unbiblically. I've gotten remarried unbiblically. All of these things might be swelling around having read this passage. And some of you might be sitting back and going, that doesn't apply to me. Well, it does. Because this passage, while dealing with the problems of lust and divorce, is actually dealing with all sin. And dealing with the fact that all sin is repugnant to God and separates us from God. So we have to start with having our eyes in the right place. And so I want to tell you right here from the start, you don't have to get cleaned up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, then He cleans you up. So don't hear this as we start, that this is a, if, you've, if you're lusting, you better get out of here and go, do, go somewhere else and get rid of the lusting and then we'll take you back in church. That's not the way it works. And praise be to God, it doesn't because I don't know that any of us would be here then. So yes, these are sins. And yes, Jesus died for them. These sins are only unforgivable if you don't see them as sins and confess them and say, I've sinned, Lord, forgive me. So the very first thing I want to encourage you to do This isn't the end of the message, this is at the beginning, because I feel like we get hung up on all the words on divorce and lust and adultery and remarriage and so on and so forth. But let's not get hung up on that, because let's take it right now and do some business with the Lord and say, Lord, I have messed up. I have sinned in these ways. Because then, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and the rest of the passage is yours. The rest of the story is yours. So do that right now. If you need to do that, please do that. See, this this sexual ethic that Jesus is laying out for us is the kingdom ethic of sex. It's the way people who are in the kingdom will live. Not ought to live. Not you should be guilted into living that way. But it's because you're in the kingdom, this is the response, the correct way. See, throughout history, we've gotten this a little wrong. Many people think that in order to be a Christian, you have to first be X, Y, and Z to then walk in the door and be a Christian. But that's not the point. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. You are a part of the kingdom, so you will act this way, not you act this way to get into the kingdom. See, we get this backwards, which is probably why some of the times the world gets this backwards. So we look at this and we say, well, but, but hold on a second. The, shouldn't everybody follow God's law? Shouldn't everybody stay married and have no lust and have no adultery and have no murder and so on? And the answer is, yeah, in a perfect world, which we will experience someday, that's the way it will be. But we are not saved and our fellow non-believers that are fellow humans will not be saved by following the law any more than we would have if we'd have followed the law. Instead, we are saved by being a part of the kingdom and then the law comes out of us. We follow it. See, they're missing out on the fact that the blessing is not just that you are keeping God's law, but the blessing is that you get the lawgiver. You get the one who gave you the law. You get Christ. So, we cannot clean ourselves up enough to enter the kingdom. We cannot save our neighbor by having them follow the ethics of the kingdom. The only way to save is knowing the king. He is the way into the kingdom. 
So that's kind of to set the stage of where we're going. Let's connect back to last week. So last week, Pastor Scott, when he went through uh, the passage, we were talking about anger. And lust and anger are kind of cousins. They're very similar. As a matter of fact, both involve power over someone else. Both anger and lust put other people down. Through opposite emotions, though. Hatred and desire. These, these, emo- these emotions unite together and we enjoy having power over people. People are used in, with both anger and with lust. It's kind of ironic. If you go back into ancient Greece, they had two gods. See, the Greeks, they had lots of gods for all sorts of different things. The god of anger was also the god of war. His name was Ares. And he was married to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. Because the Greeks saw that love, lust, and anger, and war go together. They're similar, they're the exact same thing, but the good news is is that Jesus declared war and has defeated these two false gods. So just as anger is equivalent to murder, so lust is equivalent to adultery. Now, it would be be unfair and untrue if I didn't tell you that this is swimming upstream in our culture. This view of lust that we're going to see today is absolutely the opposite of what our culture teaches. Sociologists and secular family counseling promote things that say anything you choose is okay. As long as both sides are enjoying themselves, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Relationships can change at the drop of a hat. Sexual satisfaction is a basic human right. I am not truly human if I can't express my sexuality. This is made worse by the fact that our media both conservative and liberal, is in bed, metaphorically speaking, with this idea that sexuality is something that is to be promoted, is to be used to buy and sell everything from hamburgers to cars to computers. So we are awash in this. Not to mention the television and the movies that we are, we are entertained by do not show the sexual ethics that God puts forward here. So how are we to live in this age of sensuality and sexuality? I know we haven't gotten into the text yet, but we need to see this rightly. Because if we just stand back and say, oh, well, the Christian view is this, and here's the world's view, and they're kind of, you know, two different choices. Like if you're going to choose a chicken sandwich over a hamburger, right? That's not how this works. Instead, God has made us sexual beings. He's given us instincts towards lifelong partnership. Why? To point us to the love that he has for us. See, it's not just, hey, we're a bunch of prudes and and we don't like the new thing and we're just against this and against that and against this. No, we are for marriage and we are for the correct kind of lust, the lust that you should have for your spouse. We're for that because that's how God made us to be. The dimension to life, like all others, this dimension of sexuality and marriage has been distorted and diminished and disordered and in many times ordered inappropriately. We don't keep our promises. We make sex about filling our own appetites. But the basic shape remains. Our sexuality is meant to point us to a deeper yearning, a fuller satisfaction, and a greater consummation in knowing Jesus Christ in knowing our King. 
See, the thing is, people get caught up in it because there's something about romantic love and marriage and sex that seems transcendent because it's a small glimpse of the transcendent one, of the God of the universe. But our world stops short. Our world thinks they've gone super far, and it's us Christians that haven't gone far enough. But as a matter of fact, they haven't gone far enough because sex and marriage is to point us to God, not to stop at just the act, not to stop at the covenant. And when we get this, we will see the real reality, the real kingdom. So now let's get into the passage. Verse 27, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this is a direct quote from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, also from Deuteronomy 5.18. This word adultery simply means sexual relationships outside of marriage. It means someone other than your spouse. There's no confusion on what that means. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I want to stop before we get into this next part here. And clarify something. This looks like it's directed solely at men. And it is. This is not because men are the only ones lusting. The only ones that commit adultery. We need to understand the context in which Jesus is speaking. This is a very masculine world where men have all the power. Women cannot even initiate divorce. Men have all the freedom. Everything is male-based. And so what Jesus is doing is he's coming at the people who have the power, who have the decision-making, and is saying, you need to get this. So in our world, where we have well, way more leveled the playing field, where equality is actually something within sight, women also are included in this. It's not just a man thing. So don't... Tune this out, ladies, because this applies to you as well. Men and women equally could have these issues. Jesus says, but I say to you. Now this is impressive. I know we just kind of gloss over that. We're used to Jesus saying things like this. But this would have been huge to to the Jews that were listening. It's not, thus saith the Lord, hey, I was talking to a burning bush, and guess what it said. It's not, hey, I saw an angel, and this is what he said. Jesus is saying, no, the buck stops with me. I am the one who is saying, here is what it is. This is a big deal. This is Jesus taking it back to the giving of the law. It says, lustful intent, desire or longing. This verse is not saying desire for the opposite sex is wrong or sinful. As a matter of fact, it is a God-given trait. It's when it's used incorrectly that it becomes a sin. A husband is to desire after his wife and a wife is to desire after her husband, not someone else's or not some future conquest. As a matter of fact, Christianity is one of the only major religions that holds sex up to the highest esteem possible and glorifies it through marriage. See, lust is self-centered. Lust is all about me. It's interested in my own feelings and what I want. The other is a person to exploit. The other is a person who is to be adulterated, to, to be abused. And then when I have, I have finished my time, to move on. So if you've thought at all or if you lived through the 90s and some of the purity culture, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, what counts as lust, Pastor John? What is it? Is it the three-second look, the two-second look, the five-second? What counts 
as lust. How long do I have to lust? Do I have to think of certain things? Is it certain body parts I can't look at? And so on. The problem with this is this is exactly what Jesus is speaking against. See, the Pharisees had made up a list of restrictions of what you could and could not do when it came to adultery, to murder, and so on. See, when we, when we talk about it like that and we say, well, oh, how about a three-second look? That's okay, right? What we're saying is, I've tasted the fruit. I just haven't swallowed it. Is that okay? No biggie, right? And Jesus says, no, that is not okay. See, sin must be seen rightly. Is there a difference between a quick burst of lust and a long-term contemplation? The answer is no, they're the same in God's eyes. Any lustful experience, look, thought, desire, or act causes and needs repentance on our part. See, duration is not a good measure of whether something is lust. Intensity, not a good measure. The right barometer is the end we desire. Is it righteous or is it unrighteous? Is it pointing to Christ or is it pointing to something else? See, it's, it's okay to be aware that there is a beautiful person in the room. Matter of fact, the Bible says this. So-and-so was beautiful. This person was beautiful. He was handsome. The Bible recognizes that. But lusting is a totally different thing. Lusting is making a desire for that person who is not yours. What makes desire worthy of confession and repentance is the goal, the end, the focus. Think about it this way. If adultery is wrong, it's a wrong desire, and it's wrong to desire it in any way for any length of time. Stealing is wrong. So it's wrong for us to desire it and think on it for any length of time, for any duration, and in any way. Same thing goes for coveting. If it's wrong, it's wrong to desire it in any way for any length of time. Therefore, if a sexual act is wrong, it is wrong to desire it any way, any length of time. We could go through all the Ten Commandments. See, the thing is, there's no good way to desire a bad thing. There's no good way to desire a bad thing. There is no righteous way to lust after someone other than your spouse. There's no way to do that. We can note a person's beautiful. We cannot allow ourselves the merest contemplation of desire. See, Jesus' disciples were probably sitting back going, oh, and clearly he's talking about someone else. But Jesus is not that naive. He says, listen, it's your heart, guys, that's the problem. It's not the outward, it's the inward that's the problem. And we see this. This word heart here in the verse we're looking at is the center of one's being. It's the person's identity and will. See, Jesus is saying it's not enough to maintain physical purity, but you have to maintain internal spiritual purity. The heart is the issue because the eyes are only doing what the heart tells them to do. One author said, the law is like guardrails. It's, it's the thing that keeps us on the road. When you don't crash into them, you're, caught, you're fine, but the guardrails will never be enough to make you into Mario Andretti. All they'll do is show you where to go. And see, ultimately what God wants is He wants to remake us from the inside out so that the guardrails would be unnecessary. Jesus is not counting someone clean who avoids the act of adultery. He wants the heart clean from the inside out. He's not worried about the fruit of adultery. He wants to root out the seed of adultery. So heart adultery, physical adultery are both sins. 
Jesus is not equating all sins. Obviously, some sins have repercussions that are way worse than others. And we like to do that, don't we? We like to go, well, I'm just lusting in my head. I'm not actually having sex with that individual. That doesn't matter in Jesus' eyes. They are all sinful. We have a tendency to focus on the external actions and make godliness a matter of behavior. But the broad way and the easy way is the external way. The internal way is the narrow way. Now, You've probably heard it said that Christians, we have just this hang-up on sex, don't we? Right? All we do is talk about sex, and we shouldn't be doing this, and you shouldn't be doing that, and it's all guilt-based, and we have a sex hang-up. Well, let me do a little thought experiment that I got from C.S. Lewis and see who has the thought experiment. So travel with me in your minds as we go to a world where you see Groups of men gather together in a dark room. They pay money to go in. The music starts and out walks a person with a plate. And on the plate is a nice little cover. And these men start cheering and they open up the plate and close it back down. And they walk over here and they open it up and close it back down. And then finally, they uncover the plate and it's a BLT and the men are, oh my goodness, it's a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. Oh man. So good. And those same men and women pull out their phones and are checking out videos of people eating sandwiches. They go and they look at pictures of the sandwich. They go into their garage where their wife never goes and they put up pig pictures of bacon. Actually, that doesn't sound bad, does it? There's a lot of food in this one. I, I keep doing that to you guys. I'm sorry. Or, or we take some food and we stick it in our pocket and it just hangs out a little bit to get the attention of people as they walk by. We stop and stare at people while they're eating their food. Would we say that this imaginary world has a problem with food? Yes, we would. We would say the problem is not the person that says, hey, keep your food to yourself. You worry about your food. But isn't that what the world wants us to believe? That we are the ones that have the problem because we have the hang-up on sex. When our world can't go a commercial break without something sexual. A television show. I dare you to find more than five or six that don't have sex, adultery, lust, and all of the different sins there. So who has the problem with sex? I don't think it's us. In the Bible, idolatry and adultery go hand in hand. Our world has an idol problem. And it's forcing it on us Every single day. And Jesus says, there can be no idols in my kingdom. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. This is a tough passage. Oswald Chambers said this line of discipline is the sternest one that ever struck mankind. Famously, Origen took this literally and castrated himself. Notice what it says here. It says, if it causes you. That word causes is the word trap. If it traps you. And then we see this word hell. This is the word Gehenna. It's the name of a valley outside of Israel. This was the place where people would go to sacrifice their children to the god Molech. They would burn them up to sacrifice to Molech. So after Israel came back and Jerusalem was resettled by the Jews after the exile, they would not use that land except for anything for garbage. 
and trash. And it was said that it was on fire most of the year. And it became known as a place of divine punishment, as in the term for hell. So we see some seriousness here. We see some seriousness from Jesus. He says, if your right hand, that means your strong hand, so left-handed people, you're not off. It's your strong hand. So what is it that Jesus is getting at here? He's saying, we need to take this sin seriously. We need to make sure we understand that this sin is egregious to God. And so there are things that we need to do. Maybe if you're dealing with lust, you could do some of these things. You could stop watching certain shows, cancel your streaming service. Maybe you put filters on your phone and computer. Maybe you cut off certain relationships. Maybe you get some accountability partners. Now for the Pharisee and us, we like that. We like a list we can check off because then we don't have to think about it anymore, right? So I can go, you know what? (laughs) I don't use that evil demonic Netflix because, you know, they have so much bad stuff on there. I only stream Hulu, so therefore I don't have to worry about what comes across my screen. See, the problem there is, is we've made a list, we've made a rule that we think is going to protect us, but it's not the rule It's not the streaming service's fault. It's the heart. Same thing for the filter on your phone. You're like, hey, this thing blocks all the porn in the world, so I'm just going to go wherever I want. Look at that Instagram. Oh, she's not wearing much. It's not porn. It didn't get blocked, so I guess it's okay. The heart is the problem. Certain relationships. Well, I don't meet alone with people of the opposite sex, so everything's okay, and so a little bit of flirting here and there is all right. A little bit of imagining is all right. Or, hey, I have accountability partners, which for most, most of us, it means confession of your mess-up partners. It's not actually true accountability in that I don't go to them when I start to struggle. I go to them after I've already struggled. And so we see this because we are like the Pharisees. We want a list of rules, and then we want workarounds. Why? Because we're fallen. It's the heart that's the problem. There once was a story of a man he was walking down a road. It was, it was, it was like a, an alleyway. And he said, yeah, i got to go down this alleyway. And as he's walking down the alleyway, he falls into a trap that he didn't see. Hits the bottom and he goes, oh man, this is terrible. I can't believe how dumb I am. Crawls back up, goes back to the start of the alley and goes, all right, I'm going to be ready for it this time. So he starts walking down that, aisle again, uh, that, that alley again. And he, oh, he sees it at the last minute, but he falls in. Can't believe I messed up again. Gosh. So he climbs out. Then the next time he goes to that alley and he goes, All right, this time I'm going to jump over it. So he goes running and he goes jumping and he smacks into the other side, slides down into the middle, crawls out again. Cannot believe I messed up. Then he goes, I'm going to get a friend. So he grabs his biggest, strongest friend and he says, Listen, man, you got to throw me all the way across that hole. I don't want to fall in that trap again. So his gigantic friend grabs him by the seat of his pants, does the one, the two, and throws him. And he gets one hand at the top of the hole and then he slides right back down. This could go on for years and years. Then the man had an idea I need to go down a different road. See, this is what happens when when we put all of our hope and our trust and our faith in a system that's supposed to protect us from the problem that's right here. See, we do these workarounds. 
All of these workarounds are about me being able to do what I want to do without having to deal with the root issue. Jesus is using hyperbole and allegory here, not for us to come in here next week amputated and blinded. Because guess what? Origen, who castrated himself, still had a lust problem. See, this is more than just lust, guys. This is anything and everything in your life that is in between you and your relationship with the Lord needs to be gotten rid of. It needs to be get out of our lives. Halfway measures don't work. That's what we want. We want a middle ground. We want to, I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too. I don't really want to give up my sin. I kind of want to hold on to it. But what Jesus is saying here is it's better to experience the pain of removal than to allow sin to bring judgment and death. We are to run like Joseph. We are to, to, to get away. may not fix the problem because ultimately the, the problem is in the heart, but we need to cut off the source. D.A. Carson says this, we are to drastically deal with sin. We are not to pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling at it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. Our generation treats sin lightly. Our world, and sadly our churches, say it's to be treated, not condemned and repented of. It must not be suppressed for fear of psychological damage. We are painfully aware of how sin ensnares and entangles and produces pathetic victims. But the victims are not passive. In Jesus' teaching, sin leads to hell. And that is the ultimate reason why sin must be taken seriously. Must be taken seriously. This is the, this is the sin that says damns them to hell. So would it be anything to give up a cell phone and go back to a flip phone? Or a cord phone to the wall? Would it be anything to maybe give up your computer, give up the movie series that, oh, it's got a little bit of sex in it, but it's so good and everybody loves it. To give up a friendship that is not where it should be with someone of the opposite sex. See, it seems like we're going to be doing a lot of repentance. If, if, if this lust thing is a heart issue, it seems like I'm going to be repenting every day. Amen. Martin Luther himself said the Christian life is one of continual repentance. If you're not repenting, you're not paying attention. Because the heart is deceitful. We want what we're not supposed to have. And the good news is, is that Christ tells us how to have the right heart. Because repentance is the doorway that leads us into the kingdom of heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Jesus did not impose tolerable restrictions on his disciples. He did not forget, forbid them to look at anything. He bids, look at me instead. If they do, he knows their gaze will never go elsewhere. So far from imposing an intolerable yoke of legalism, he suckers them with the grace of the gospel. See, here's the thing. No matter what restrictions, guidelines we do, no matter what we're willing to give up, which those are good. Do not hear me say that giving up and having filters and not watching certain certain shows and breaking your phone and going to a flip phone so you can't look at what you're not supposed to, those are good things. But that's not going to solve the problem. There was lust before the internet. There was lust before television. There was lust before music. The music that leads to dancing, that leads to sex, or vice versa, however that goes. See, it's the heart that's the problem. So how do we change the heart? Well, let's go back to the beaker. How do you fill the beaker? How do you get the air out of the beaker? 
by filling it with something else. Thomas Watson wrote a book. I highly recommend it. I'll send it out to you all tomorrow. You can find it on the link. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it, Thomas Chalmers is going, how do we free someone from the love of the world? So the love of the world is the the air that's in the beaker, the soul beaker. How do we fill, how do we get rid of the love of the world? He says one way is to show them how bad the world is. Maybe maybe show them how what's going to happen if you don't if you don't turn your life to Christ. This would be the trying to suck the air out. Virtually impossible. He said the other way is to show them something greater so that your heart now goes, I'm not going to settle for this garbage that the world's giving me because I get Christ. And that Christ in my life expels the affections to those other things and pushes them right away. See, we can come up with complex plans to stop sinning. But what we need is we need to be filled up anew. We need a change in our hearts so that we are in love with Christ. Because heart is the ultimate location. So the gospel reality of our union with person of Jesus Christ underpins what it means to follow Christ. It is how we mortify. It's how we kill the lust in us. And it's not a daily thing. Because guess what? That air is sneaky and it's trying to get back into that beaker over and over again. So I must constantly have Christ fill me anew. And he promises that his spirit will do that. So that's our lust portion of the text. Now we need to talk about marriage. And every time I say marriage from a pulpit, I really want to say marriage, like from the Princess Bride. The first couple of weddings that I did, I actually had a hard time not going, marriage is what brings us here today. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go home and watch Princess Bride. That's your homework. Um, so why do we get married? Well, the world says, and many of us in the room would probably say, love, companionship, children, some days, right? That's the the reason we get married. But the Bible says God made marriage, so he gets to tell tell us, and he's decided what it's for. Yeah, yeah, the government's involved in marriage, but their version is a very, very dim shadow involving a piece of paper and tax breaks. Whereas Christian marriage, the marriage that God put forth, established by God, is, wait for it, not about kids. It's not about companionship. It's not about love. Instead, it's an illustration of God's love for us. It's not about us being fulfilled. It's not about he completes me or she completes me. It's about two 100% complete people coming together to point to the greater reality as a living parable of how God loves us and will not leave us. Christ is to be shown by the husband, by the wife, as the supreme lover, the bridegroom, the protector. One author writes this, the purpose of human marriage isn't ultimately for the husband and wife to love each other. Marriage's true aim is to point people toward the ultimate reality of Christ and His church. Marriage is only a momentary shadow. Christ and the church are the perfect, everlasting reality. So as we we see this picture of what marriage looks like, it'll help us when we step into verse 31, which says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
This is an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. The rabbis, however, as they taught this from the time Deuteronomy until Jesus' time, gave all sorts of exceptions to why a woman could be divorced, her husband could divorce a woman. Very much like our no-fault divorce that we have today in America. The examples that were written down were, the wife isn't as beautiful as she used to be. The wife is contrary to what I would like. Or the last one, the wife burns the food. These were all legitimate grounds for divorce according to the rabbis. As a matter of fact, Jewish law had been so permutated into this new form that Jesus has to bring us back to the original. Jewish law said if a person commits adultery, there must be a divorce. Not there could be a divorce. Jesus gives us this exception, whereas in Jewish law, Jewish law was it had to happen. Verse 32, But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Notice here that Jesus connects not only lust to adultery, but also to divorce. So let's break down a couple of these words so we know what they're talking about. The first word is sexual immorality. Not necessarily a word we use very often. Um, It's the word porneia in Greek, which is translated fornication, which I'm sure didn't clear anything up what that means. The Greek word chosen here, porneia, means any sort of sexual sin. Not limited to, but including adultery, prostitution, incest, and fornication, which means sex outside of marriage. And so all of these are listed as problems. Notice it says, makes her commit adultery. Jesus is pushing the male perpetrator here of an invalid divorce and saying he's causing this situation that she finds herself in. D.A. Carson said, in God's word, marriage and love are only for the tough-minded. Marriage is a commitment. And far from backing out when it gets rough, marriage partners are to sort out their difficulties in light of Scripture. See, of these antithesis that we've seen so far, this is the hardest one. Because at this point, we have anger, we have lust, and we have divorce. Which one is not able to be covered up? It's divorce. Lust and anger? can do that in the privacy of your head. But divorce involves the people around us. And so unfortunately, many times we take divorce and we treat it as a unforgivable sin. We treat it as a stain. See, we are good at covering up our sins, but with divorce, it's right out there in the open. But we must remember the context. Where did we start this entire sermon off? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Why? Because they'll receive the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' commands and his antagonism towards sin must not be the focus. We, We have to continually go back to the blessings and the forgiveness. This is what this is about. For both Jesus' blessings and his commands have the same purpose. The purpose of all of this. The purpose of Jesus talking about how the rabbis have misused divorce. How they've, they've allowed for certain types of lust and certain types of anger. As long as you don't say certain words. Is taking away the purpose of not only the commands, but also of the blessings. Which is help for his people. Salvage, salvaging lives and salvation. God saves. That's literally what Jesus' name means. 
He saves both through His commandments that are tough and His forgiving that is unending. See, we must remember, matter what happens with divorce or remarriage, we must remember the picture of what marriage gives us. is We are to be a living parable of the one who will keep His promise. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the hope that we have. See, Jesus is not simply challenging the world on sexual behavior and marriage. He's challenging the world on identity. The wrong question is, what do you do? Don't commit adultery. The better question is, who are you? Are you a kingdom person? Or are you a person who lives for your own appetites? For gratifying them? Are you the kind of person that pursues and keeps a covenant, a promise? Or are you the kind of person that looks for convenient ways around it? The kingdom of heaven is defined by the king. He was the creator. He made them male and female. He fashioned the woman for the man and it was very good. He says the issue is not merely the avoidance of adultery, but the heart that wants that. So come to this king. Enter his kingdom knowing full well that his views on anger and sex and marriage are going to fly in the face of our world. This will bring us into conflict, but take heart, he has overcome the world. The king is here. He's calling you to him. Not get cleaned up and then come to him. Come to him and then he'll clean you up. He'll care for you. This is the path to being a part of his kingdom. And I pray that we would all join him there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we can spend some time in your word and worship and fellowship and the reading of scripture. Lord, I thank you that you have a word for each of us today. And I look forward to, Lord, how you're going to work on our hearts. I pray, Lord, that now as we spend some time in worship, that you would continue to do a work and that your name would be made great. In Jesus' name, amen.